Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's great to hear in the news recently that the expedition to find Ernest Shackleton's endurance has succeeded. That they have found the vessel at the bottom of the Weddell Sea in the Antarctic in the most fabulous condition where it has been preserved for over a century in those cold, dark depths. And more importantly, depths that are entirely free of wood-eating organisms. The endurance was discovered four miles from the last position taken before she was crushed in the ice in 1915. If you want to find out more about the hunt for endurance, do please check out our dedicated episode in which I talk with David Means, a shipwreck hunter who has dedicated much of his life to identifying the position of the endurance. Now, I was fascinated by this modern take on polar exploration, and in particular with the geographical challenges that the team faced, and I thought that we could put it into some context. So today we're talking about the challenges of voyaging into the ice, but but with particular reference to trying to find the Northwest Passage in the Arctic. So let's now head to the Arctic. I want you to envisage a sea route that passes from the North Atlantic up the west coast of Greenland into Baffin Bay before taking a sharp left turn through a crazy maze archipelago of islands that lie off the northern coast of Canada. Once through those, the route passes to the north of Alaska and then through the narrow straits between Russia and Alaska into the Bering Sea and from there to the Pacific. The Bering Sea is named for the Danish navigator Vitus Bering, who, operating in Russian service, explored it in 1728 from the Pacific. What we are discussing today are a number of expeditions launched by European maritime powers and private interests in an attempt to reach the Bering Sea from the Atlantic following that tortuous icy path, a route that was not actually discovered until 1906 when it was successfully navigated by Roald Amundsen. The first European to attempt it was John Cabot, a Venetian living in England, who made that first attempt in 1497. He reached somewhere in Canada, but believed he had reached Asia. 
The Frenchman Jacques Cartier then tried in 1534. The Spanish Francisco de Ulloa in 1539. The Englishman Henry Hudson in 1609. And then an increasing number of explorers, the most famous and most tragic of which was the John Franklin Expedition of 1845, in which Franklin and his 128 men and two ships, HMS Erebus and Terror, both vanished without trace. I should add here that we have also recorded a podcast on HMS Terror, so do please take the time to listen to that. But for now, let's hear all about the challenges of mapping these attempts to find the Northwest Passage. I strongly suspect you will never think the same way about a map ever again. I spoke with Dr Katie Parker, a historian specialising in Pacific history, the history of the book and the map, and the history of empires in the long 18th century. Her current book, Manuscript, examines the production of Pacific geographic knowledge by European empires in the century prior to the voyages of James Cook. She is the research officer at Barry Lawrence Ruderman Antique Maps and a teaching associate at Queen Mary University of London. She serves as the book reviews editor for HMAPS and the administrative editor of the Hacklite Society. And before we hear from Katie, I need to say that this episode is being published in honour of Glyn Williams, who recently passed. Glyn was Professor of History at Queen Mary in London and one of those scholars who laid the foundations for so many. His work on exploration, the Pacific and Northwest Passage in particular, changed the way that we think about the past. And now, here is Katie. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the Northwest Passage. Now, one of the things I'm most interested in in all of this kind of history of exploration is how anyone knows that there's something there to be discovered before they've discovered it. How did that work with the Northwest Passage? How how did the kind of the rumours of there being one first originate? Sure. So with the Northwest Passage, it's always a much more hoped for thing than even I think most people thinking it's an actual thing. And the the ways in which that plays out changes over time. Um, but there has um, always been rumors that are, or I guess, again, it's more hopes of either a Northeast or a Northwest Passage. And the goal is always to get to China. So China is where we have the very rich markets and um, the Spice Islands as well. So everything that Europe wants is over in the East. And it takes a very, very long time to sail there. So pretty much at the exact same time as we get the Portuguese rounding the Cape of Good Hope, um, as we get Magellan going through Cape Horn, those are very long, very dangerous voyages. And so there's always a hope right from the beginning of um, European expansion into the Indian and the Pacific Oceans that there's a way to bypass this, that it's, it's going to be faster. And so we're going to see a lot of expeditions go in the 16th century, um, both to the northeast and to the northwest. And um, England is actually going to be a leader in these expeditions. It's one of the only um, parts of exploration early on in this age of expansion that they are actually leading in. Um, so this is when we're going to get um, those voyages of of people like um, eventually Henry Hudson, we get Martin Frobisher, uh, and then uh, we get James and Fox up to about 1630. And then there's a real disillusionment because uh, they haven't found very much yet. 
Um, they kind of make it into Hudson's Bay, and that's as far as they can get. A lot of people have died, ships have been lost, and there just hasn't been much return on this investment. And they are privately funded um, vessels that are going out. And so without any returns, that's where we're going to see this kind of first wave of Northwest Passage searching stop around 1630 um, in there. Are they not phased by the the ice? I mean, we've got a lot of uh, very large voyages all going around the world. There's a wonderful tradition of people sailing, but not necessarily through sea ice, through ice packs, having to break ice. I mean, did that? Did they? It, it almost seems as if they like. Well, you know, let's just crack on. Was there was there concern about it? Uh, there's definite concern and there's a lot of discussion about which ships are the best ships to take into ice, um, how you double hull or you reinforce a ship um, to see if it can make it through the ice. And a lot of times the ships don't make it through the ice. And then you're going to see the crew is going to have to resort to small boats or they're going to have to have an overland journey or they're going to perish and, and disappear. Um, and worries about the intensity of winters and having to winter in the ice and be frozen in. Um, is, a, is a theme throughout these voyages. And that's one of the reasons that we're going to see a mutiny against Henry Hudson um, on one of his voyages is that he kept pushing and wanted to continue on. And his men were so done <laughs> with being in the cold and with being in the ice and being in these conditions um, and not trusting his command that they are going to put him and his son, actually, and a few other crewmen into a small boat and kind of push him out. And then they're going to take the ship and leave. Um, so ice is a is a constant fear. And for a lot of the later voyages um, that we'll see going into even the 19th century, um, the the actual expedition where they're going, they don't always tell the crew that that's where they're, they're bound for, because they're afraid um, that the men are going to desert if they know that they're headed on an Arctic expedition. So by the time we get to someone like Franklin, we're going to see a lot of people are actually volunteering for those 19th century voyages because of the prestige and the heroism that the explorer image has, has accrued. But earlier voyages, nobody really wants to go to the Arctic because they are afraid they're going to die and because it is so cold. Yeah, there there are links with Russian soldiers not being told they're going into the Ukraine at the moment, which is um, very interesting indeed. So there's um what what's clear from this is that there is a very important narrative that has to be controlled about the the Arctic voyages, certainly for recruiting people. Um, but to let's sort of to get to the the heart of that, I suppose the question is, who does it benefit? Uh, who is funding? these voyages to find the Northwest Passage? Um, so until we get to um, the Middleton expedition in the mid 18th century, these are all going to be privately funded. So they're going to have to, um, who anyone who wants to mount one of these expeditions would have had to find investors, backers. Um, so we see that we have Bristol merchants involved. Um, you do have people like Queen Elizabeth is interested in these voyages, but any sort of patronage from a noble person would be a personal patronage. It wouldn't be a, a state-funded venture the way we see and we think of exploration in maybe the 18th century as being this big state-funded operation. That's not how these earlier voyages are working at all. And then once we get to 1670 with the founding of the Hudson's Bay Company, then you're going to see a few voyages um, that are going to be funded by the Hudson's Bay Company itself. But as the company is there to make money, the company is actually very hesitant to fund any voyages um, that would what we would call exploratory voyages. But at the time, were usually marked as voyages that were um, to go upon a discovery is usually the phrase you see in the documents. And so these discovery voyages, which are not meant to be making money, are not meant to be trading, but are only meant to see if there are other passages or other geographical features that might be of use. 
that doesn't have a great return on investment. And so you're not going to see the Hudson's Bay Company willing to invest um, at all. They do one voyage in 1719 um, with James Knight and his voyage is lost without a trace. Uh, and after that, the Hudson's Bay Company is really going to pull back. There is another voyage led by a guy named Scroggs in 1722, again with the Hudson's Bay Company, but they don't bring back enough interest. It's very similar, actually, to the two voyages of Tasman in the mid-17th century, uh, funded by the Dutch East India Company into the Pacific. Tasman, sure, he encounters um, Aotearoa in New Zealand. He encounters uh, Van Diemen's Land, which is today Tasmania. But that actually doesn't return any uh, resources or investment opportunities for the company. So the company turns away from the idea after the second Tasman expedition. And we see the same thing happening with the Hudson's Bay Company. That's really interesting, isn't it? So it's not necessarily the first person who gets there who actually makes the big breakthrough. It's um, it kind of you, you have to stand on the shoulders of giants before you can before you can ever start to make make any money out of that. Um, all of these different voyages you're talking about, were they all going to the same place and getting stuck in the same place? Yeah, with the Arctic, there's kind of obsession points and those change over time. So in the earliest voyages, so Frobisher, Hudson, those guys, um, the real focus is going to be trying to get into what is going to eventually be Hudson's Bay um, and to some of them end up in Baffin Bay. So that getting across the northern Atlantic and then trying to get any way sort of inland or across. And that's going to lead them into southern Hudson's Bay and then up into Baffin Bay. And they don't really see um, where that can lead from Baffin Bay because of the level of ice in Baffin Bay. They actually don't know if it is a bay or if it um, is as it actually is, is a larger um, inlet and passage around, except that it's iced in all the time. So on maps of the 17th century, um, you're almost always going to see Baffin Bay is connected. Um, we actually almost see, sometimes see Greenland connecting all the way over making Baffin Bay a, two, a true bay. Um, so that's kind of the first area they're obsessed with. When we get into the mid-18th century, the main interest is northern Hudson's Bay. So there's a, a area called Rose Welcome, and then there's an island that at this point wasn't known to be an island or how that geography worked, but called Southampton Island. And so there was a lot of discussion that if you went along Rose Welcome, that it was very likely you were going to find an inlet and that that inlet then would lead via kind of a riverine passage would lead to the Pacific eventually. And they're working on um, rumors from indigenous peoples that are trading with the Hudson's Bay Company. And then there, um, there's just a lot of hope and wink with the, the evidence that's being used. Um, so Dobbs, who we're going to talk about in just a second, Arthur Dobbs, who's an Irish politician uh, and eventually a governor of North Carolina, uh, he is very interested in tides. And so he looks a lot of the um, reports about tidal flow in the in the bay. And by looking at this, he, he decides that there has to be a Northwest Passage because the tidal flow is so, um, the change in the tide levels is so big that there has to be um, basically a connection to an ocean up in the north or else the tides would never fluctuate this much. And then the mm -hmm. other evidence that's brought up again and again will be whales, that there are whales in the northern Hudson's Bay. And if it was really just a bay, the whales wouldn't be there. They wouldn't because there's no evidence of whales um, sailing into Hudson's Bay in the south. So they must be coming from the north through a passage. Mm. So they're not necessarily just trying to find it, but they're trying to find evidence of it. So that surely must uh, open up a, an entire fascinating history of, of like the theory of geography of like how people understood mm -hmm. that the, the the world was formed i mean have you got geographers working on this and using the discoveries to sort of change the way they think about the world 
Yeah, um, so this is actually, if you look in the um, the publications of the, of the, so the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which is the journal of the Royal Society, they have a lot of articles on just this topic. And actually, Arthur Dobbs, who is our politician who's going to become obsessed with the Northwest Passage, he publishes in the Philosophical Transactions, and he actually publishes in the same issue as a guy named Christopher Middleton, who is one of the uh, Hudson's Bay Company captains. And Middleton is interested in magnetic variation, but he also has 20 years experience in the Bay, and he is also very interested in the idea of a Northwest Passage, and agrees with Dobbs that he thinks there might be an inlet in the north of the passage that will lead to the Pacific. So there is people, so we have a captain, we have a politician, you have other fellows of the Royal Society who are usually um, rich, richer men, um, and then you do to some extent have uh, map makers who are also interested. So within Britain at the time, we don't really have um, academic geographers, that's not really a field that's developed yet. Um, and in other European countries, you do have state-funded map makers and, and geographers, or in, in Spain we might call them cosmographers in an earlier era, but in Britain, they don't really do that. There is no state funding for map making. And so you're going to see that most of the map makers are actually trained engravers that then shift to making uh, maps over time. And so you do have a few of them who become a lot more academic in their focus. Uh, but most of the maps at this point are going to be compilations of past um, ideas. And that's where you get the idea of Baffin Bay being connected um, Greenland being connected to North America and things like that. So there just isn't a lot of detail in the maps of this period in Hudson's Bay at all. And that has to do with Hudson's Bay Company has a very strong monopoly on information. People didn't know who the investors in the Hudson's Bay Company were. They didn't know who the governor was, um, which at this point is a guy named Bibby Lake, which is an excellent name. Um, and so the Hudson's Bay Company had, keeps a very close lid uh, on all of their information. And so that's also another frustration for people like Dobbs who think there is a passage, but they can't crack into the information that would be really helpful to them in terms of more evidence, would be like logbooks from the Hudson's Bay Company, which are not public. Um, so there is some enough evidence to make it of interest to people, but not enough evidence to necessarily convince investors and or the Hudson's Bay Company to put money behind this and send voyages out. It's amazing that um, the British don't have a state-sponsored map-making department. Um, I suppose, you know, when, one of the most important things with a discovery is that you draw what you've found. Otherwise, people can't go back there. Um, when did that start happening? When, when, I mean, who, who was it left up to? How did, how did, there were so many questions I've got. How, how did they police the accuracy of what was being done? Um, so the, the government doesn't police it. They leave it up to industry, really. I guess it's a, they think it's a free market activity. Um, so it's not going to be until 1795 that the Hydrographic Office will be founded in the UK. It's one of the last of the state-run hydrographic offices um, that will be founded. Uh, we have the Depot de la Marine in France in 1724. You have the Casa de la Concertación in Spain, which is hundreds of years old at this point. Same, similarly, Portugal has had um, one of these centralized repositories for centuries. So the British instead depend on the private mapmaking industry, um, which is flourishing by the mid-18th century, but naval officers would have to go to mapmakers, usually um, near St. Paul's Churchyard is where most of them had their shops, and buy their own charts before they went on expeditions. And that's why you see a really healthy discussion amongst mapmakers at the time about the quality of maps, because 
if you bought a map or a chart that had erroneous information or had even speculative information, that could cause an, an expedition either on land or at sea to go the wrong way, to not find what they need, to not get the support they need, and then people could die. So maps were very important at the time, but they weren't absolutely unregulated. And that's why we see um, such a healthy discussion about places like the Pacific, where there's so little information available that even uh, maps in voyage accounts are going to be used on vessels going into the Pacific later. And so there's a lot of responsibility involved with creating these maps. But then, like you said, surprisingly little <laughs> regulation of something that is so important. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Important. And they're maps, not charts. So they're maps. They, they, show, the, um, they show the geography, but not the... Not they're not um, kind of linked with sailing directions or depth of water or tidal streams or anything like that. It depends on the object and it depends where you're going. So for certain areas, um, there would be a lot of extant charts that would have sounding depths, that would have room lines, that would help with navigation itself. For some areas, especially the Pacific, there is so little information available but that any kind of geographic object that includes any information. So we, that's why we see um, a rehashing of uh, any sort of voyage account that's gone there that might have sailing directions, that might have even just a little sketch map. They'll kind of grasp at straws because there's so little information available. So some areas are very thickly charted. Um, the Atlantic, obviously, is an example of this, in which you could buy very high quality charts themselves. Other areas, charts are just not going to be an option. And so you use whatever is extant there. And just because also a chart has a lot of sounding depths and looks really good doesn't mean also that it, it is um, the most updated or also correct. Um, so there's a healthy discussion amongst map makers, but then also naval officers, government officials about um, where charts are coming from, how they're made and how they're reviewed. And actually Samuel Pepys um, in his position with the Royal Navy is one of the foremost discussants of this in the late 17th century. Um, so the fact that maps are not regulated and that maps and charts could be used interchangeably if they're the only information available, so in a place that doesn't have much geographical knowledge, um, that is going to feed into these wider discussions about imperial expansion and about uh, government regulation, really. So it's a much wider conversation. 
it does with all of that lack of regulation and um, and also lack of knowledge of where people have been. Are there any examples of deliberate manipulation of knowledge? People making stuff up because it's a good story. Oh, definitely. Um, or I think there's. It's not usually a deliberate manipulation, but there are definite um, different levels of comfort with evidence. Um, so I think the best example of that is um, a, a map that was published um, first in 1752, in January of 1752, I do believe. Um, and this is going to be published by uh, Philippe Boache and Joseph Nicolas de Lille, um, who are two of France's foremost um, geographers. They are um, state-sponsored, so they, have, they are paid by the government. And they're also members of the, um, the Académie Française, so the, the uh, scientific body in France. They published this map that shows these fantastical lakes that basically connect from 63 degrees north latitude all the way over to Baffin Bay. Um, and so they say that the information for these fantastical lakes that basically suggest a Northwest Passage, they say that these, the evidence for this comes from these two letters by a guy named Admiral de la Fonte. And Fonte is apparently a Spanish admiral um, who went on an expedition in the North Pacific in the mid-17th century. At 63 degrees north, he found an inlet and he followed it through these lakes. Another one of his vessels went up to 79 degrees north latitude, where they um, did not find a passage. Um, but Fonte did eventually run into a Boston ship captain, he says, a guy named Shapley. And so these two letters um, are used as evidence by Boisch and Delisle to support this rather fantastic map. The problem is these letters, the first time there's any evidence of them, are in 1708. They're published in the monthly miscellany in London. And then they're kind of kept alive. Some people know about them, some people don't. And they're going to be revitalized actually in 1744 by our friend Arthur Dobbs. He's going to include them in one of the many books he's publishing at the time because he is now actually fighting with Christopher Middleton about a voyage um, that Dobbs was able to convince the Admiralty to send to um, Hudson's Bay. They get into what Middleton calls a paper war, um, in which they write a total of eight books about each other's understanding of the geography of Hudson's Bay. And in one of those, Dobbs is going to include these letters from Admiral de la Fonte. The map is immediately criticized from many, many angles by Robert de Vaugandy, de Berlin, who are the French geographers, and by an Irish geographer named John Green, um, whose actual real name is Braddock Mead. He is a fascinating guy. So John Green is very upset for all of the re reasons we've been discussing about the responsibility of map and chart makers, that they could send a voyage awry. Um, but he also points out that if you read these supposed letters, Fonte doesn't have an inlet at 63 degrees north. The inlet's at 53 degrees. And the, so the reason Dobbs is interested in them is that there's an inlet at 53 degrees. That will lead to Hudson's Bay, where he's put his um, flag in the ground to say that the, the passage must be through Hudson's Bay. Whereas if it's at 63, a passage will go into Baffin Bay. So Dobbs kind of throws himself into the fray of criticizing this French map. Um, but then very quickly... We're going to see that Delisle will react to this criticism, and he issues another map in September of 1752, in which he's brought those discoveries down to 53 degrees. However, Boache never renounces. He does this really complicated dance to try and explain why it makes sense that 63 degrees is where the inlet would be. Um, and so actually, Boache and Delisle end up splitting, and they don't work together anymore, even though they're um, related by marriage. They no longer... Um, 
work together because Delil, when he changes his um, the inlet, he says that he that Bosch is the one who misread the letters, and so it's Bosch's fault. Um, and Bosch obviously doesn't like that. Um, so we see this really big kind of kerfuffle, and it sounds like an academic discussion, but this was um, re, uh, it was printed in the Gentleman's Magazine in London. All these maps were seen by a lot of people. So it was actually part of a much wider discussion. And again, the reason for that, especially in England, is going to be Dobbs. He's everywhere. And so he is going to point out that if these Fonte letters are real, and if there's an inlet at roughly 53 degrees north, that would suggest the passage... Um, to Hudson's Bay goes through New France, and that the reason that Boche and Delisle wanted to obscure where the actual passage is, why they put it at 63 degrees, is because France was moving in on the passage in Hudson's Bay, and that France was going to get there before England. And of course, he then adds in digs at the Hudson's Bay Company because he doesn't like them and says, see, the Hudson's Bay Company, if they'd been doing their job, would have already found this. But now it is going to have to be up to the state government, to the crown itself, to find this. The Crown is not actually interested in this, but it does add to the cacophony of kind of the bells of war as we lead into the Seven Years' War, because this is right in the mid-1750s at this point. Um, so these discussions, while they do seem kind of pedantic, they actually connect directly back into larger geopolitical discussions about which empire is going to be predominant in North America. Mm, bit of deception, bit of xenophobia, bit of fear of war. Um it sounds like there are some people who are pretty worried about this. They're worried. I mean, they're sort of there's a kind of an anxiety over it as well, isn't there? About who's mm -hmm. going to find it. There, there's a huge amount of anxiety. And I actually the reason that I'm so interested in both the Middleton expedition and then in this map war that happens a little bit later um, is because I think this is a shift in the search for the Northwest Passage going from a focus on investment and money and that if it can just be found, then all these ships can flood through and there'll be open trade and it'll be much faster so that it's a money-making opportunity. In the mid-18th century, there has been enough voyages and enough people in the know realize how difficult a passage will be even if it is found, going back to ice and how difficult ice is to deal with, and that each year some places are iced over, some places aren't. And so it is, people realize that if a passage is found, it might not be navigable most years. And if it is, it's going to be a terrible navigation that won't be much easier at all than going either around Cape Horn or the Cape of Good Hope. And so I think we see a shift in the search for the passage in this mid-18th century time, where we see um, a shift from really the idea of investment to national pride. And that whoever finds this is going to basically, it's going to be a big boon to their empire and to the reputation of the English people or the French people. And I think you can actually see that with how the Fonte letter controversy finishes up. Um, so in 1757, we're going to get a book called Noticias de California, and it's published by a guy named Buriel in Spain. It's going to be translated into English as well. And then from the English translation, there'll be a Dutch and a French translation. In the Spanish, Buriel points out that he has searched all through the Spanish archives and can find no mention at all of Fonte. So this should have been enough information to put the Fonte letters to rest and to prove that they were fakes. However, in the English translation, the appendices that explain about the Fonte letters have been eliminated entirely. And if you look in the introduction, um, the... English uh, translator and the editor says that the Northwest Passage is a matter of national pride and that whoever finds it is going to be forwarding trade and commerce, but also going to be helping their nation. And so you see that this was a, a, a deliberate editorial 
um, choice to leave out this information because the passage now has to exist, not so much because it's going to make everyone money, but because it has been uh, tied up with people's reputations like Dobbs, but also the reputations of entire nations like in this case, England. And really that national pride, that wanting to be the first is really what's going to drive all of the expeditions in the 19th century. It's fascinating, isn't it? I love this idea of there not being perhaps one passage and that actually there may be several or there are several leads and it's going to be a a shifting geography. Um, I suppose part of, of... of that history then is, is, um, you know, the public latching onto it being a simple idea and perhaps experienced mariners knowing it is a complex and difficult one. Yes. And this is something you see um, with perceptions of the wider Pacific as well, but especially of the Northwest Passage. Uh, It's very easy for people to say, oh yeah, let's just go out and search for it, um, which is very different than if you are going to end up like um, Franklin does before he dies. But then something like the McClure expedition that goes to search for Franklin, they end up spending four whole winters in the ice. And that is a terrible experience for anyone, even if they did have, um, in the Collinson expedition, they have a billiard table made out of ice, and they also make a skittle alley made out of ice. So there are, you know, moments of frivolity, but it is a terrible, terribly difficult situation to be living in. Um, And again, that's why I think we have people in the know realize this isn't going to be navigable or useful. But there's been, at this point, two centuries already of searching for it. And so the need to finish this quest and the fact that the quest is now brought up, has, is wrapped up into this idea of the heroic explorer who is very much the vanguard of empire. Um, that becomes something that people can't leave alone. It has to be sought. Mm. I do love the idea of people investing so much time and effort into something which they know is not useful. I think that will really um, change the way people think about the Northwest Passage. Uh, just before we go, I'd like to talk about just the interaction between Indigenous peoples and, and those explorers. What do we know about that kind of culture clash? Oh, definitely. Um, in, in many ways, it's not a culture clash. Um, we have many, many, many um, records um, and evidence to show that the Inuit are hugely helpful um, to pretty much any um, poor white men they come across who are wandering around the ice, which happens quite a lot. Um, and so the best evidence we have of Inuit um, helping um, in, in Inuit evidence is, of course, with the Franklin expedition in the 19th century. And so the reason that Terror and Erebus have now been found finally, um, which happened in 2014 and 2016, the reason those ships have been found is based on Inuit um, oral history and Inuit evidence and commentary at the time. And so I think the main issue with um, the Inuit is that uh, usually the white explorers weren't willing to believe the information that was being given to them um, because it didn't conform with their pre-existing understandings and assumptions about Inuit people, but also with their pre-existing assumptions about the Northwest Passage itself. So on the Collinson expedition, one of the many to find Franklin, he's actually ridiculously close to and eventually charts a Northwest Passage. Um, his uh, fellow McClure has actually just beat him too, um, being the first one to get the, the money for it. Um, but he asks at one point um, an Inuit person to give him, to draw a map. And on that map, they say that they've seen a ship of a Westerner and they locate it just to the east. Collinson, after he sees this, um, it's given to one of his officers, a guy named Arbuthnot. Um, he says that, no, 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 this map can't be real. The guy, the Inuit was just drawing what Arbuthnot wanted to hear. 
It turns out that that if they had gone slightly to the east, that is precisely where Franklin's men, most of them we now think, um, ended up dying. And so there's a lack of um, there's a lack of belief and credibility for the Inuit peoples, which I think if um, people could have swallowed their pride and realized the value of the knowledge of the people who lived there earlier, the Franklin expedition certainly would have been found earlier. Um, but also throughout, I think there would have been more understanding of the hardships of certain routes and the fact that certain routes were not viable earlier. Um, but there's issues of translation, but there's also real issues of worldviews um, that were not uh, working together in this situation. I remember when they found HMS Terror, and there was a thing in the newspaper, they said that they found HMS Terror in Terror Bay. And it does seem like yes. the bay, most sensible place to look for it. <laughs> it does, believe. although Terror Bay was named, um, Terror Bay was going to be named only about um, 100 years before. Um, so Terror Bay, that name is not from, um, because they knew Terror was there, it's where Terror had been looked for before, but they didn't find it. Um, so uh, that one, they didn't, they didn't already know it was there and then forget about it. Um, <laughs> that, that name came from a different, uh, one of the many um, voyages trying to find terror. But it, it is quite ironic that that is where terror was sitting in relatively shallow water. Yeah. I think I got the impression that the indigenous people had somehow named it Terror Bay. And they found out about it and knew about it and we just hadn't asked them. But anyway. Anyway. I, was like, I wish uh, that was how it was. Um, but the, yeah, but indigenous oral history did know precisely where it was. And um, an Inuit person as very recently had said that he'd actually seen a ship with a mast in that area. And then when they went to look, it was precisely there. So, yeah. Well, fascinating stuff, Katie. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. And I'm sure I'll come back and find out more about um, Pacific navigation in another time. Happy to help. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please take the time to find the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube, where you will find a number of outstanding videos designed to sit alongside our audio podcasts that present the maritime world in a new light. We've got 3D models of ships to explore, animated battle plans, important historical footage, artificial intelligence, interviews, and much more. I promise you will be intrigued, entertained, and, more importantly, impressed. Please also, if you are listening on an iPhone, scroll down in the podcast app, hit five stars and give us a review. This is hugely important in helping other people find our podcast, which helps us in our mission to change the way people think about the maritime past. Please find us on social media, but best of all, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost much, but your money will help support this podcast. It will help publish the quarterly Mariner's Mirror Journal and give you access to the entire back catalogue over a century of scholarship. And it will help preserve our maritime pasts. And of course, if you remember, you get to come to our annual meal on board HMS Victory. And that is something you will never, ever forget. So if you are enjoying this podcast, please don't just be a passive listener. Do get involved. We'd love to have you aboard. <laughs>